Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I've used them for about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer now. Since I started using them, they built out an incredible transcript library. I will refer you to my discussion with Troy Lavinia if you'd like my honest opinion on what I think they've done and my chat with the founder. Today, Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said, Stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis. I couldn't agree more. Andrew Friedman, subject of this podcast, guest, if you will, also uses Stream. Please see StreamRG.com, where you can use the promo code BREW to sign up for a 14-day trial in order to get a more robust understanding of any company you're interested in. This episode features Andrew Friedman. My informal endorsement of Andrew is he's been a heck of a guy to get to interact with. We've done some Twitter spaces together with the Twitter CFO, Ned Siegel. Andrew's got a ton of hustle and a newborn baby at home. In short, he's exactly the kind of person that I'm looking to help promote himself. Not just that, I think he drops a lot of educational knowledge. So hopefully this podcast is a win-win-win for everyone involved. The formal sales pitch for Andrew is he runs a business within Hedgeye, which is an independent investment research firm covering 10 fundamental and industry sectors, macro, economics, and policy. Andrew's a managing director there. He is the communication sector head at Hedgeye. He also holds senior analyst responsibilities on the healthcare team where he specializes in information technology. This is a fun telecom tech and media discussion. I hope you enjoy. I hope it's educational. In case you need to hear it, as always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Happy to be joined by Andrew Friedman today of Hedgeye fame. Andrew, how you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. I... uh I, a benefit of doing the pod is I get to ask people like yourself to send me information that they want me to look at. <laughs> and you sent me some uh, examples of what you do for Hedgeye. And I got to admit, man, I think that that is a heck of a product. Thanks. I appreciate it. Work, a lot of work goes into it. So I uh, appreciate that feedback. I'm I'm like pretty proud of the podcast. And then I'm looking at your TV production that you guys have over there. I'm looking at a couple mm -hmm. expert interviews of you interviewing experts. You got the hedge eye TV behind like yeah. symbol on it. it. Looks very professional. I got to step my game up. Yeah. I mean, look, we've been doing this. Uh, hedge has been around for over a decade. I've been here for eight years. I mean, a big part of it early on was kind of democratizing research and creating this kind of mass market media business on top of like the core institutional research business. And so Keith and, you know, the management team at Hedgeye invested heavily pretty early on in building out kind of that studio infrastructure and making a push to video. And it took a long time to kind of gain traction. But I think as with many kind of digital media 
type businesses, right? The last kind of 18 months have been kind of transformational in that respect. So a lot of those investments have really paid off in a world where we're not really interfacing in, in real life that often. And the video has been a great, the studio has been a great asset. And it's something that, you know, it's the, we do all of our research reports through it. Um, we host, you know, to your point, you know, speaker calls on it. It's a, it's a, it's a great asset to have. It's a great way to communicate and people and drive engagement. So when I, uh, I have never talked to Keith. Keith, if you listen to this, first of all, thank you for being on my corner on the Robin Hood debacle. I appreciate you for that. But I've, I've always listened to Keith talk and I know he's got his quadrant things. And I'm always like, this dude is either like real smart or selling some stuff that's disprovable. And I didn't know which, but then you and I were talking and you were like, the quadrant stuff really works. And it's been interesting to get to know you and interesting to talk to you a little bit about it. And I do, I, uh, I, I think the way that Keith goes about selling his business is uh, understandable to me. So when I got to see behind the scenes of it, I was actually quite impressed. And the other thing that I didn't know is I sort of didn't know that, and this is maybe stupid, but I just didn't know it. I always thought of Hedgeye as like a macro firm mm -hmm. just because of all the quadrant talk. Yep. But the information that you do is uh, obviously very sector specific, but the the video of the expert call, I was like, wow, I had no idea that Hedgeye offers this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, look, we were founded as a macro research shop, right? Um, and still core to what we do is, you know, the macro, uh, but we have over 10 different verticals, all the different sectors, tech, industrials, finance, you know, Keith leads the macro research team and yeah, I mean, not everybody does macro, right? And that's just, that's okay. It's not for everybody. I, a lot of us are kind of born and trained as fundamental research analysts, right? I was like CFA, you know, went to finance and economics major in undergrad. Like I understand that. But there's elements within, you know, the macro process that can, I think, can be really additive when it comes to idea generation on the fundamental side. And, you know, the quads, they work so well. And you can hate it all you want, or you can be skeptical all you want, man. But I got to tell you, time and time again, like the growth and in inflation and policy model that they've developed and the way that they analyze you know, macroeconomic conditions and rates of change within the economy, it works. And it helps calling different kind of environments in a world that's increasingly factor-driven and flows-driven, where sometimes things go up for reasons that are make a fundamentalist scratch their head and go down. But if you understand kind of the macro, you can be like, all right, well, growth and inflation is slowing. So beta is going to get hit, right? It's risk off. And I'm oversimplifying it, right? But that's kind of the concept. And if you can navigate the quadrants effectively, then, you know, from a portfolio perspective, and that's how I kind of communicate the ideas in my space on the position monitor, I think you can, you know, increase your hit rate, be right more than you're wrong and help time your positions because you know you know how these stocks are going to perform on a back test on a back testing basis with a pretty high degree of accuracy. And then on the on the fundamental side, we've been doing this, you know, we've been bolting on the sectors for some time. You know, I've like I said, I've been here for eight years. I started off in the healthcare sector, kind of cutting my teeth in the healthcare IT space, and then had the opportunity several years ago to take over the, the comm space. Uh, which I kind of did a land grab and called it everything internet, media, cable, telecom, which is you know, pretty appropriate. Good for you. Yeah. So that's been a lot of fun. But yeah, it's a fundamental research process. We do a lot of you know, 
uh, I don't call them expert interviews, whatever you want to call it. Experts a dirty word these days, but you get the point. No, you're, you are having interviews with people that actually know something. For instance, the one that you sent me was a discussion mm-hmm. about television manufacturers yep. and how that, how that fits TV within Roku's yep. distribution you know, strategy. And, and that is not, that's a, a quality of discussion that is not just out there. It, and I can tell how you're adding value through having it. Yeah, no, and I, and I do appreciate that. I mean, part of it's process driven, right? You know, a lot of people have access to these, you know, now these kind of like platforms, like there's Stream Mosaic. Be careful, one sponsors me now. No, Stream Mosaic, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that one of them. I won't mention the other one for that reason. But um, but the point is, it's like those. It's all right. They yeah. know about Tegas. Yeah. Stream, Stream knows about Tegas. No, so we, we're complimentary products over here. Yeah. I got love for Tegas too. They just don't give me stuff. Yes. Yeah, so so th- those have been great. But, you know, I think, you know, building your own network is really helpful because, you know, the reality is that, you know, I have a pretty good understanding of fundamentals and how to make stock calls. Uh, I also know a lot about the industry, but there's a lot that I don't know. Right. And so I'm always trying to learn. And so being able to kind of, speak to somebody who's an operator or whose knowledge base is just far more deeper than I could ever get is can be really additive and just kind of connecting the dots and helping out, you know, model these companies in the future and understanding how they're trending in the shorter term. Are you, uh, are you comfortable giving people a high level overview of the quads or should I just refer them? No, I mean, I, I can do that. And I mean, look, I think, it's up to you. I mean, I think Keith would probably be happy to come on the pod if you ever want. Yeah, well, someday I may have yeah, him. At some point. But, but yeah, uh, I, I am happy to. I mean, it's... Just so people kind of know what we're talking about. Yeah. Because, I, I, you know, not everybody nerds out on podcasts and finance sure, stuff all day, right? Sure. So they're probably like, what are these quads these guys are talking about? So I hope... I, I think I'll do it justice. But it's a four-quadrant model, right? And you, within each quadrant, it's based off of growth and, and the way growth and inflation is trending. So within quad one, you have uh, growth accelerating and inflation decelerating, just kind of like the best macro regime to be in, right? Because you're creating like real value in the economy. Quad two is growth accelerating and inflation accelerating, which is what we were in coming out of the pandemic going into the first half of uh, last year. And that's, an, that's kind of a, an environment that we haven't historically been in the last decade or so because it's been slower growth, right? Where we have this whole reflation trade is probably the best way to describe it. And in that environment, most everything goes up except for kind of like telecom, but like high beta, high short interest stocks do really well. Legacy media companies that have kind of been left for dead see their businesses reaccelerate in that environment. Inflation's positive. So then, why is that? Because like advertising comes yep, back. Adver- to them. Advertising yeah. comes back. You know, it's also kind of an environment that like deep value typically works. So, I mean, I, and I think we saw that play out like, pretty well. So, if you were able to make the quad two call, which they did in November of last year, or no, sorry, 2022 now, in November of 2020, going to the first half of 21, you know, and you, huh, that was a good time to make that call. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked really well. I mean, I was sitting there from a fundamental standpoint and like thinking things were just going bonkers, right? And so I started making short calls because, you know, I thought that, you know, they would probably, you know, growth would start to, to slow down a little bit um, and valuations got a little wonky. But if you were able to make long calls, like our retail analysts made a great call on GameStop on the long side and you could, 
disagree with him all you want, right? But he made that at the end of 2020 going into 2021 and you got paid. And then, you know, quad three, which is really interesting. Now, did yep. he have like short squeeze type stuff going on in his call or did he just say, I kind of like it as a reopening play and it's deep value? Yeah, I mean, it was there was a fundamental reasoning behind it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was really cheap, right? I mean, cheap for a reason, but, you know, short interest was definitely a part of it, right? Because, you know, the quads can tell you what kind of style factors are going to work, right? So hmm. in quad two, you want to be long, high, short interest. And so in that huh. sense, you screen. That yeah. actually kind of makes sense to me. Yep. Yep. And then, um, you know, and then quad four, you want to be long, you know, you want to be short, high, short interest, right? You want to be short leverage, high debt companies, the shit codes, the ones with the, the weaker operators because they go down a lot. And so that's kind of. Dude, you know what's off. crazy? Just let me fork this real yeah. quick. Something that I, that is like in my head right now is I, I know that everybody's focused on inflation and I realize that there's supply chain stuff, but the idea of like hiding in some of these like crappier businesses because they're at lower multiples right now, see, as commodities specifically, like I'm not saying it can't work, but man, do I think people need to have like very specific and detailed knowledge mm-hmm. about the asset that they're like, it's just, that scares me. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to kind of like, I'm very sector focused, right? So I can't really yeah. speak to other industries, but- you know, like the concept of cyclicals looking, you know, really expensive and really cheap at the wrong times, right? Yeah. Is is pretty classic. And yeah, everyone's obsessed with like commodity inflation. You know, we had a pretty successful long commodities call as a firm, like really successful at work. And kind of now we have a peak inflation call, right? And so things are starting to slow down. So in that sense Oh, did you guys call that? Uh, I mean, they yeah, yeah, I mean, they made that calling kind of for like the peak uh, last starting last quarter and have interesting yeah, and kind of making like the out of consensus call uh, to be kind of like long. That's what my gut says too. Yeah, I, th- I think people are too worried about inflation, but this is things that are bound to look wrong in retrospect. But I don't know; it just feels like it's on top of mind. The other thing is everyone's dunking on growth right now, and that just doesn't feel. It like doesn't it's feel right. Well. Yeah, no, I mean it's. Uh, it will it will turn. There'll be a turn, right? But I mean, you know, it's uh, it's been an interesting kind of environment. And to say that it was a bubble, it was a bubble, right? Like I mean, like unprecedented monetary policy, unprecedented fiscal stimulus. Everybody staying at home, people trying to rec- like tell themselves a narrative and justify the valuations that we're seeing in some of these like smaller cap mid tech growth companies that were profitless you know, digital transformation, all these things. But, you know, look, if it if it smells like a bubble and it looks like a bubble, chances are it is a bubble, right? And all the di- trading dynamics that we saw over the last 12 to 18 months, you know, all support that. You can study, you know, every single bubble or mania going back to the dawn of time. And, you know, they always, sometimes they look a little different, but a lot of times they look the same. And there are companies that are better companies post-pandemic than pre-pandemic for sure. They're good businesses, um, but I think the issue is that you know a lot of good businesses were kind of out there masquerading as you know great companies and getting valuations that they didn't deserve, and there were a lot of crappy businesses that were obviously crappy getting bid up to multiples that they didn't deserve. And so it's easier to identify the crappier companies. It's harder to identify kind of the good companies that are masquerading as great companies 
that's where kind of industry level knowledge comes into play because then you can really create a lot of value on long side or short side, in this case, the short side. But yeah, man, I think it's liquidity is drying up. Growth is going to slow. We're comping stimulus. And that's kind of been the reason why I was so negative, you know, at least in the digital advertising space last year, you know, with like Pinterest and Snapchat on the short side. Because it just was obvious that, you know, things were going to kind of fall into bed. And look, we haven't been perfect. Like Twitter has been an absolute disaster for us. You know, I feel less bad about it because the way that we communicate ideas is through a long, short framework and we have a position monitor. So, you know, I can't just say, like, would, would the right call have been to say short everything? Sure. Right. But like in reality, if you're running long, short, you can't just be 100% short everything. Right. So, trying to balance like relative calls with my outlook and say, look, like short Pinterest, stay long Twitter, be long Facebook or Google and short Pinterest and Snapchat against that, you know, to kind of hedge yourself, but know that, you know, I think that the industry outlook is pretty dire and that multiples are going to come down because estimates are too high and revenue growth is going to slow and that's not going to be good for anybody. Right. So then how mm-hmm. do you, so then how do you play that? Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of the, the game that I'm trying to you know figure out and help people out with. Yeah, that makes sense. So now, now I want to talk a little bit about you because I was unaware when we when we spoke earlier. You are affiliated with Hedge Eye, but you actually run your own like research siloed business within there, right? Like, yeah. it's it's your little baby, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, you know, I don't work as hard as I do just because. I mean, maybe I would if I if it wasn't that way, but you know, it's definitely a situation of like what I put into it, I get out of it. And so the way that Hedge is structured. And I is, you know, it, it's a revenue share model. So, you know, I, maybe to like use an analogy, I know you're familiar with Formula One, but I think it's kind of works, right? Like, and probably many of your listeners are familiar with it. So you have like Formula One, which is the league, it's the brand, it's the overarching component. And within that, you have different teams, 10 teams, two drivers. And then within that, you know, each you know, team is part of Formula One. They're all incentivized economically to move the sport forward because there's that revenue share component that's payback as, as part of it. You know, those cash team payments are 60 to 70% of EBITDA. So that's kind of like a framework to think about. But, you know, if the sport becomes more competitive, they grow their audience, they get more sponsorships, it all flows through better economics to the sport and the team. And, you know, all the teams kind of agree to like a governing document for how things are operating. And so kind of in that sense, Hedge Eye is you know, somewhat similar. All the individual sectors and sector heads are kind of like the teams. Each sector head, and I'm not going to call myself a Formula One driver, but you kind of get the point, right? Like I'm operating that business. And so we sell research subscriptions. Hard dollars mostly get paid through hard dollars. There is a CSA component. We get paid off of trading commissions, but really the bread and butter is subscriptions. We don't do banking. We don't do trading. So in that What's sense- What's the CSA component? Uh, like, component? you know, like if, um, if a large mutual fund complex generates dollars through trading activities, right? And there's a pool yeah. of money that becomes available, then they vote on it and it gets allocated. Or if there's some firm that's generating some type of like credits or commission pools through trading activity, then that becomes available to pay for other like third parties. So it's- not pure, purely hard dollars in the sense, but it's it's pretty close. But either way, you know we're, we don't have a trading desk. We don't do banking, so we don't get paid. We don't have 
asset management or AUM to back ourselves up on. So, which is kind of why, you know, I care so much about, you know, the, the quality of work that we do. And, you know, maybe we come off as being a little combative sometimes in our calls, because at the end of the day, like people are paying us to be right for the right reasons, right? Like you can, if you're managing money, you can be wrong and still make money, right? You can be long beta or you could get lucky and still get made, make money. You know, if I'm wrong on the thesis, but the stock price works, then people, then I'm just lucky, right? And then therefore, yeah. from a research perspective, you're not going to really pay me to add value. So it really, you know, becomes, you know, more alpha oriented. And then I guess the only other thing I'd say, just kind of going back to like the hedge eye structure in the business, it's, yeah, I mean, whatever revenue I bring in, I pay a percentage back to hedge eye. You know, in return to that, I get access to a sales team, infrastructure, the media, the production studio, and then everything after that goes to pay myself, whoever works for me, you know, research and data expenses. So there's definitely like a gross to net component here that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. But, you know, I have a P&L to manage, a business to grow, expectations of me, you know, managing a business within a business, and then, you know, figuring out how to maintain that and grow it because, you know, there are only so many seats, right? Like there's only so many yeah. sectors and my space is, there's a lot of smart people competing in my space. So, you know, if I were to just stop working or not do well, right, then that increases the probability that puts my seat at risk or I don't get paid, right? Because my revenues will suffer and my costs will go up and I'll have no P&L, right? And in that case, either scenario isn't, isn't good. And look, look, sometimes you have people that like, teams that want to, you know, you want to switch teams internally, go work for another team because it doesn't work out, or maybe choose like an entirely different sport altogether. That certainly happens. And you have different like types of people on the analyst side. You know, you have like your, your rock star young guns, you have your more better, like wily veterans, all with their different kind of style and process. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all do work together. It's a competitive place, but there's a high loyalty of you know, trust amongst each other. And then, and you know, I do consider everyone I work with teammates, and we do have our best interests in mind. You know, if we do have a setback or you stumble, like they'll be there to support you. They're not going to show you the door. A lot of that comes from like the top down and the way Keith manages the organization. You know, Keith is, you know, a hockey coach, right? Like, so he's competitive, but he also understands what it takes to coach a, su a successful team, and that kind of filters through the rest, you know, of the organization. So, look, it's not for everybody, but. You know, I personally wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I feel very fortunate, like the support and autonomy that I was given as a young analyst. Basically, no sell-side equity research experience, just hunger and passion and drive, you know, and then having that, you know, being able to run with that and giving this type of responsibility and promoting early, uh, you know, I've been very happy with. And, you know, I think it's worked out for Hedgeye too. And it's also worked out for other analysts within the firm too. You know, Hedgeye has a history of that. So it's been, it's been a really fun ride and it continues to be, you know, a great ride that we're on. But that's kind of, you know, how we're structured, which is why, you know, I take so much pride in my work and maybe get sometimes defensive on it, right? Because, you know, I'm trying to- Well, who doesn't get defensive about their work? Yeah. Anyone that doesn't get defensive doesn't care enough, in my, in my humble opinion. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's kind of, you know, how we, uh, that's, that's how we operate kind of in, in a nutshell. So- Let's talk Twitter, if you don't mind. Sure. Oh, God. <laughs> so that I I had not, you know, this is part of why I, I enjoy having conversations rather than just being on Twitter is I can contextualize 
you know, how you saw being long Twitter. Why, like, what about uh, Snapchat versus Twitter competitively? Were you saying, okay, I don't like where Snap is over the next 12 months versus where mm-hmm. Twitter is? And like, why was Twitter of all the assets to remain long? I mean, I know why I like the story. Yeah. I'm just curious to hear you articulate like what you saw between those two. Sure. I mean, look, it's performance advertising is kind of the holy grail. It's the fastest part of the market. And when you look at Snapchat, you know, going back to the fall, it wasn't necessarily that I thought that the business was a bad business relative to Twitter. It was just that I thought expectations were way too high. Consensus estimates were way too high based on my industry modeling. And I thought that it just had the biggest potential for downside negative surprise and the valuation to come in. And then I thought that from a kind of a and then along those same lines, you know, if you look at some of the drivers of the business for Snapchat and Pinterest over the last kind of 12 months, a lot of it's, a lot of it's been uh, driven by the boost of engagement you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of share gains, right? So you know, going into the back half of 20 into 21, Snapchat and Pinterest were the shiny objects because you had the Facebook boycott and, you know, so, and the big spike in engagement. And so they sold a really good story to agencies and they took a lot of share. And then it just became a situation of, well, you're coming up against difficult comps. You're no longer the shiny object. TikTok is starting to monetize. You're losing share of engagement. And, you're, and we also have these pri- data privacy issues that are coming down the pike. And because you're a smaller scale platform, you're probably not gonna be able to manage that as well. So you kind of put it all together and you come to the conclusion that this isn't sustainable. And so from a, a multiple perspective, probably had further to fall um, and estimates had further to fall compared to you know, Twitter. And then from the Twitter perspective, it's always been a case of, and this has been the thesis for a while, and it still hasn't really proven itself out, but you know, can you turn it around, right? So there's more idiosyncratic event-driven type ways to think about Twitter that make it a little bit more attractive you know, if you're interested in that type of a call, right? But to say that you know, they're still exposed to brand advertising mostly, which I thought last year would have been a good thing because brand advertising got hit so hard in 2020 that I thought that they would outperform relative peers. And I think you know, it will show that occurring in Q4 um, result and in Q1 guidance, but it still hasn't translated to any type of multiple expansion. And they've just gotten taken down with the rest of the group because it's really just a relative play. So you know, from here, Twitter is just all about, you know, can they get direct response, advertising off the ground? Get become more shoppable. It's a really competitive industry. I do have structural concerns about it, whether or not the platform is just conducive to that. And if what do you mean? Uh, Sorry. Yeah. No. No. It's a, no worries. Uh, yeah. It's um, so you know, are, like Instagram's inherently shoppable. Pinterest is inherently shoppable. There's a high degree of commercial intent, right? The use case is yeah. a little bit more conducive to shopping and conversion. You know, Twitter is not is not really a content native platform in the sense that you're you're feeding people ads and you know you're you're shopping or like you would on on Pinterest, right? The ad load is a little bit higher, and the nature of the discourse on Twitter is much different, right? In that people are looking there to engage in conversation. It's more event based, so the engagement trends that Twitter sees relative to others, it's more episodic and and kind of yeah. non trending. And in that case, if you're trying to attract always-on performance ad dollars, it makes it a much tougher sell to do because you basically have to time your flights more in line with you know, these major events. 
Huh. And so, so like yeah. I like to sell football pads or so, or maybe like Budweiser is a better example. Yep. So during the Super Bowl, I'm going to like have some, I don't know, or like golf clubs are probably uh, more concrete. So during the Masters, buy ping golf clubs here or whatever. But once the Masters is over, I need to find the next event and my salespeople need to find the next appropriate DR campaign to run next to that event. Yeah. Is and, that yeah, no, what you're saying? No, that's fair. I mean, and, his, and just historically, though, that's always been brand advertising, right? That's, yeah. you know, rebroadcasting content, generating buzz around the event, whether it's the Olympics or the Masters or the NFL, Super Bowl, whatever. But I'm saying like a click that then leads you direct to commerce because I, I mean, I bought when Bubba Watson won the masters, I bought those pink clubs. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to think if those are the types of DR. Yeah. That's like, you almost mm-hmm. need to get it while it's live. Yep. And that's, and that's the opportunity. Right. And so then what Twitter needs to do is they need to lean more heavily into that uh, click, but they also need to, you need to have the reporting and measurement, right. In order to be able to measure that conversion. And the issue is that, you know, Twitter's ad tech historically hasn't been that great. And a lot of advertisers, don't have like the pixel installed or the capabilities to accurately measure that type of conversion event. So there's a lot of, I, I still think a lot of low hanging fruit, but you know, to really, really get a lot of SMBs on platform and to really grow their share of advertisers beyond just the large ones and to become a truly direct response platform, they need to be able to keep people using the platform that you know, it's not that are daily users um, that are not just, you know, coming on because there's a conversation going on around the masters or because there's some type of event, right? They want to be able to feed you that ad every single day and know that you're seeing it because it increases your probability of conversion and then it helps with retargeting and the list goes on and on. So that's kind of, you know, the opportunity and the risk and whether or not- This is, yeah. sorry, no, but this okay. is like why- I think they skew like if if you look at ad loads, at least for me, and I I know uh, Compound Two Four Eight has sampled this too. Uh, he's got a more statistical mm-hmm. approach than mine, but it's like crypto and sports gambling. Yeah, and it, and it sort of makes sense, right? Because every single day the market's open for or at least I mean maybe it's twenty four seven with crypto. Mm-hmm. Like you can get the the Webull. Click to sure. install this right now. And think right? about the demo- Whereas, and think about the most engaged demographic on Twitter. Yeah. It's a perfect, it's a perfect, um, it's a perfect fit. Makes me nervous for them a little bit because if this is a crypto bubble, like how does that uh mm-hmm. how does that hit the PL? I mean, you heard Ned, you, yeah, you, you heard Ned last um in Q1 last year, you know, throwing out like little data nuggets about how much crypto has been boosting everything when things were going through the roof, right? With all these wallet services. And then likewise, all the, you know, going into the Super Bowl, or sorry, the NFL season start, you had all the, the sports book launches as well. So yeah, I mean, and, and ad load is higher. They're trying to experiment with ways to drive engagement, whether it's through carousel ads, you know, that drive higher clicks, you know, per ad. Now they're starting to experiment with advertisements within comments right so that all is immediately accretive the question becomes just whether or not it turns off users ultimately right and so yeah it's always a it's always a delicate balance between the two but it's um it's twitter has been very difficult to love i mean the reality is that if you're looking for a business at scale that has much better ad tech data incremental margins cash flow it's you know, it's never going to be Facebook. It's never going to be Google, right? And so that's 
always the argument, but it's the same debate that investors are having is the same debate that advertising agencies are having, right? Where do I allocate, you know, if I have a, if I have $100, where do I allocate that in digital, right? And it's the same thing. It's like mostly Facebook and Google, right? Because they work, right? It's this, yeah. And that translates directly to fundamentals. So until you believe that, you know, either Twitter can grow its share of engagement or really improve its targeting and ad tech, it's going to be harder for them to really significantly grow their share of digital advertising dollars versus, you know, going forward. Now, historically, they've lost share. So just not losing share anymore and, turn, and maybe gaining like 10 basis points a year is going to be positive and accretive. But then the question becomes, well, now estimates have come all the way up, right, to their long-term targets. And so how much upside is there? And then the industry is slowing down. So it just becomes a very precarious setup for somebody that, you know, is long and strong Twitter, but even though it impacts kind of the industry broadly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting asset, especially since like there's a lot of combative discussion, and uh, I would think as a brand, putting yourself right in the middle of combative discussion is not ideal. That said, that's where they tend to to do. I mean, that's that's what that business does best, right? Is brand advertising. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of an interesting observation well, more than a yeah. Than well, else. they well look those brands cut bait when the discourse on Twitter becomes really negative right like they won't be there like during you know the the capital riots and and what happened you know post-covid in the summer um, george floyd like they just stopped spending on twitter because they just don't want their brand around that yeah so you know you're spot on there um that's why you know last year in the summer was so good because we were reopening people were seeing each other in person and you know a lot of good vibes were going around. So it was a good time to be a brand advertiser and get in front of people. Yeah. Nice to have two and a half good months is sandwiched in 18 months of shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> at least, at least from a life perspective, did you yeah. see the, uh, the Alicia keys ad that she ran and the spaces that she did? Um, I did. I saw it. I didn't really dig into it too much, but I know it got it was a, interesting. a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of traction, a lot of views. It was interesting, man. So like if you opened up the ad and this, I think, was kind of a problem because you did have to click on the ad. Mm -hmm. But once you clicked on the ad, you could preview the songs. It was like a partnership with Spotify. Mm -hmm. And then she did a space with Jay-Z where they discussed the album and like she ranked her albums and the Jigga Man ranked his and they talked about music and stuff like that. Yep. That's like a that's a pretty cool example of the dream of how the platform could work, right? For but sure. One-off examples are insufficient uh, at this stage. Yeah, I mean, you need to scale it, right? I mean, that's been the issue, like the execution counterpoint, right? Like, you know, super follows, great. It's not it's not rolled out to scale, right? So, how well does that really monetize or benefit? I think they're doing the right thing and that they have to iterate faster, experiment, get feedback, A-B test the whole nine yards. That's, that's the name of the game. And I think spaces and podcasting and integration with like a Spotify potentially is very interesting. You know, if you can expand audio formats, build out the ad network, it's, it's like the opportunity is real, right? They just need to get after it uh, at some type of scale and, you know, take a big swing and maybe under you know the new ceo they can actually do that time will tell but so far they haven't really you know taken the bull by the horns i would say and really 
roll something out in a big way. It's been more like these smaller pieces, which don't get me wrong, like all these smaller platform changes, right? Is, is a rising tide of engagement, right? It, yeah. it all helps. They all feed off of each other and that's what's important. But in terms of monetization, you know, they haven't really done anything that is going to unlock a tremendous amount of, you know, incremental revenue. And that's yeah. what I'm waiting for. So that's why space is, is potentially interesting. Some of these other, you know, new user initiatives are interesting as well. So as somebody who uh, takes pride on being accurate, and you're running a, a long, short, uh, how would you describe what you're, a re research recommendation service? Is that a fair way to characterize what you do? I mean, independent research firm. I mean, like, if you really want to boil it down, you can just call us a sell side. I mean, it, it kind of feels like a dirty word, just given our the way that we think about the world. And I guess know. the only reason I don't associate you with the sell side is I associate you a little bit more with price accuracy. Well, look, we, we have the we, sell side. Well, I don't. I mean, so the sell side gets paid what for uh, corporate access a lot of the ways, right? Or like yeah. order flow or banking. Like, so there's lots of conflicts, right? So for us being an independent firm, like we're trying to like exploit that, and we do research, we make actionable investment recommendations, right? You know, things that I and we talk about catalysts and price a lot, but you know, the the goal, the name of the game here is to make an investment recommendation and get paid on it, right? And, yeah. and have it work. So in that sense, I guess maybe we aren't this, the sell side, right? Because they're inherently Yeah, that's why inherently I'm, I'm, you're kind of a tweener. Yeah, look, mind. I mean, like we take a very buy side mentality to what we do, right? So, you know, it's, um, you know, maybe it's just an element of brainwashing over the years to kind of do it because we don't really run asset, like we don't run money. But I think about it in terms of like, if we were to run money, right? I think about my ideas, and when the stock is going against me, I feel the pain, right? Yeah. It's just, I can't, I, we just don't actively trade on it, right? But I think I have that type of mentality. And so in that sense, a lot of our clients and people that subscribe, like get a lot of value from that because they can take what we do and they can immediately apply it or not to try to create value. But I'm very like performance oriented, right? Like we're, a, you know, we focus on trying to, like I said, be right and make good calls and you know, be right more than we're wrong, right? That's just the name yeah. of the game. Yeah, well, especially if you're selling a research service. And I mean, you know, you're feeling it in your P&L if you're, if you're not right for well, too well, long, so, so that's you lose people. I mean, that's the thing too, right? So, and like the biggest, there's natural skepticism, right? Of anyone that's trying to sell you anything. And I totally understand that. And one of the biggest points of pushback and criticism that we often get from people initially until they actually understand what we do is like, Oh, you don't run money. You don't have any skin in the game. And it's just like... I would say to those people, Andrew has a young baby at home. Yeah. That's a lot of skin in the <laughs> game. Well, exactly, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's had a baby. You know, it's, um, you know, I have a wife. You know, I have a family. And the other thing too is I would argue that it's kind of, maybe I have more skin in the game in many ways because there's the... You know, I, I like I said, people will only pay me if I'm right. Like if I'm if I'm consistently wrong, right? Or if I'm consistently wrong or produce low quality work that doesn't add any value or their perception of value, then they're not going to pay me, right? And then my business goes down, and I have no P and L, and I don't get paid, right? Like it, it's it's just like that simple. So I have to be right, and that kind of it forces you to think differently. It forces you to be creative when it comes to data it forces you to kind of be a little bit more diligent. And the buy side is inherently time 
constraint, right? Especially for PMs. And I feel it on my side too. But the other thing too is that, you know, from this seat, I can look at it from a, a little bit more of a fresh perspective and tend to spend a little bit more time with ideas and not have all those inherent biases associated with having like a live position on where maybe the analyst pitched it to their PM and it's going down and, you know, they're, the analyst is saying, no, buy more, buy more, buy more. Um, and then you're sitting there with like an 8% position and I'm coming out and saying short it, right? That's a really tough dynamic, right? To be in from my seat and then from the analyst perspective with the relationship with the PM, because then the PM's like, well, he's saying short it, you're telling me to buy it, who's wrong? And so I've been in situations before where there's a lot of mutual respect within our client base, right? Like, you know, we're not really like, Everyone has an ego in this business, but we try to put it aside and just try to come to the right answers as fast as we possibly can. And so kind of the most fun conversations, now they're fun for me. When I was younger, they were terrifying. But is when <laughs> when you're going up against like a seat when you're going up against like a senior analyst and the PM and your PM's like, so you're saying this and you're saying this, and you're both looking at kind of the same thing. Ready? Fight. You know, yeah. or it's like come to figure it out, debate it out, come to the right answer. And, um, you know, it's, it, it is fun, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to go too off topic there, but like to, to your, no, I like yeah, it to your point though, it's, it's, you know, we're trying to provide actionable investment recommendations to our clients, help people become smarter, faster, and hopefully, you know, that all translates to making money at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Speaking of of places where there may be some combative energy, you are not the biggest cable fan. <laughs> not inherently. I mean, look, I am not. So it's interesting, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to have my identity tied to some type of like secular view or long or short, right? Like when you have when you become the Netflix bear and the Roku bull, right? Then you're in, in or the cable bear. You're inherently putting yourself in almost a lose-lose situation at some point because you can mm. be right but then especially when you're public and bill you like you recently you know your yes. your rise in the public sphere has been awesome in the last like 18 months right and i like and when you do everything in public and you make your investment ideas public it creates this sense maybe anxiety or bias like you know, you, your ideas kind of become your identity. And then if you're wrong, it makes it much harder to pivot because it's really harder to fail in public than fail not in public and just be able to cut bait on your idea and move on to the next one. And so, you know, when you say that, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of cable, it's, it's yeah, I mean, I'm not, but I think that doesn't mean that I wouldn't be in the right environment, right? Like I was a big Roku bull and, you know, I'm still have a long bias. I should have pivoted short, but at least we punted it, right? You know what I mean? So it's Oh, did you? Yeah. Like we we yeah, I mean, we wrote it initially up to like 360 in like December. And then we we sold like we put it from a best idea, like actionable idea down to the bench. And then I was like, because I didn't understand valuation. The valuation framework was just beyond me. What were people doing at that point? I, I've I've spent the last three or four weeks thinking about it a lot. I, I'm still not sure where I'm at on it, but I, I was trying to reconstruct what people were seeing at higher, high, like 400, right? It was it's like, it's really hard, right? Because I mean, like your valuate, my valuation approach is it's, first of all, it's like kind of the last thing I do. I care more about like the trends of the business. Like 
is it accelerating, decelerating, like where the fundamentals are doing, because that's going to translate ultimately to like the, what the price does and, and value. But back then with like Roku, people were just extrapolating. I, I you know, I, I honestly, I'm not even sure. I mean, I think going back, yeah, well, like, I mean, we like, said it, it might've been a bubble. It might've been a bubble. Right? So, I mean, everything yeah. was, I mean, what were people doing with AMC? Like what were people doing with some of these other names? You know, a lot of things didn't make sense then. And when a lot of things don't make sense, I just kind of tend to not do anything and just wait. And the way that I've always thought about Roku simplistically is kind of the same way that people think about Netflix long-term. You know, how many accounts, how many subs can I get? What's the ARPU going to look like? What's that revenue mean? What's the margin profile? And then a multiple I'm going to pay for that in whatever year. And then what, what do I discount that back by? And for Roku, I've always kind of thought basic framework, 100 million active accounts, $100 ARPU is $10 billion in revenue. 35% EBITDA margin, 3.5 billion in EBITDA. Five years from now, trading at 20 times seems reasonable to me. That's a $70 billion EV. So that's kind of what I'm playing for long-term. And then, you know, that, and then what does that translate to, you know, in the stock price? And, you know, there's been some dilution, but, you know, it was somewhere between like $300, $400 a share, right? Like ballpark. And then I'm sitting there, I'm like, all right, well, you know, even if I'm right on my fundamental view long-term, like price is bad. I'm basically pulling forward, like all these stocks are pulling forward fundamentals that they're going to be putting up five years from now today. And stocks are discounting mechanisms. So yeah. even if I'm right, I'm still going to be wrong on the price. And so I think that's what a lot of people missed. You know, a lot, maybe some more of the, like the, the traders or the, the people that got or are newer to this game, right? And learning how like stocks work and investing work and value works. So I think people got too excited, clearly, right into a slowdown, right? And I, I, I mean, I fucked up Roku because we tried to get long again in like July, August, because I had some data that looked like, you know, maybe accounts weren't going to be as bad and they missed. And then I kind of was like, eh, let's just wait, you know, because Q4, they had a really good upfronts. Q4 is going to be better. And then, you know, doubled down on the work. And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe over 12 to 18 months, you know, long term, this thing's going to look good. I can get to 50% upside. You know, the next few months are going to be choppy. And then, you know, and then we did our themes call, realized that the industry was going to totally roll over. And then they reported earnings and they were disappointing. And I couldn't figure out the guidance. Like the guidance based on my model just didn't make sense to me. And in that scenario, plus the YouTube debate, I was just like, this thing's not like, this is, this is done. So we just moved on hmm. at like 300 and I'm kind of just like waiting, right? Cheap gets cheaper when growth is slowing, you know, when growth is accelerating, expensive gets more expensive. So huh. I'm just waiting for kind of the fundamentals of the business to bottom and seeing, you know, where that is and then make an assessment from there what to do. Cheap gets cheaper when growth is slowing and expensive gets more expensive when growth is accelerating. Yep. That's what you just said? Yep. Huh. It's not a crazy concept, right? Like, no, I mean, I'm just thinking about why it would like intuitively make sense because oh, I like yeah, to internalize no, these things. Yeah, I mean, I can I can help you out if you want. I can try to explain yeah. it. Like, yeah. So, and and this is part of just like how I think about investing and stock prices, right? So, and I fully understand like valuations and opinion, and everyone has their different approach, right? So, and and neither one is better than the other, and you know, so I just want to say that up front, but. So much of a, you know, so what, what one thing we've learned coming out of the pandemic is how much of a, of a company's 
or stock price's value is based in its terminal value, right? Yeah. The next three to five years don't matter as much as what the perpetuity value is. And that's not really surprising because anyone that's built like a DCF, right? Like you, you know how big the terminal value is to your, to your ultimate equity value. And you know how sensitive it is to all the inputs around interest rates and growth, right? And so, and when growth is accelerating, right? What does the street do? What do investors do? They tend to extrapolate, estimates start going higher. They start to extrapolate that growth in, into perpetuity, right? So terminal growth rates go up. And then in the case of COVID, you know, interest rates were also dropping like a rock. So we had this digital pull forward transformation. Everyone was raising estimates, tons of stimulus. People got really excited. Terminal growth rate assumptions go way up. Um, interest rates are way down. And so multiples go through the roof. These companies are beating estimates. So estimates continue to go higher and higher and higher. And it's like an accordion. And then as soon as growth slows, and then you have momentum, right? Just pure momentum yeah. as they're beating. And then growth slows. And then it's the opposite effect, right? So it's kind of like classic momentum. And, but there's a fundamental basis. And there's also a, like a behavioral component to it as well. Which is why, you know, if you look through some of the decks that I sent you, like we have the process slide and we have that slide that's like a, it's at the very beginning. It's a, uh, it's like a normal distribution curve, right? But it's, yeah. it's kind of like, why? Yeah, the fundamental idea generation yeah, slide. Yeah, it's basically like expectations gap, right? So there's the behavioral component, but there's also with like short interest, sell side and sentiment. And then there's also, you know, the fundamental component, right? And so if I can identify situations where companies, where consensus is wrong and they're going to beat estimates and growth is accelerating, that's the holy grail because I'm going to get a, a paid on estimates going higher and the multiple expanding and vice versa, right? Um, and, yeah. you know, th that's why Roku worked really well from us initially. I mean, we kind of got lucky with the pandemic, I guess, in some ways. But fundamentally, that's kind of, the, the view, right? And, you know, that same thing can be said for like legacy media companies, you know, Melting Ice Cubes, Garp, like the list goes on and on. But that's kind of just how I yeah. think about value and what drives stock prices. No, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's, um, it's just, you know, it's funny because I, I think before I understood, not saying that I do understand, but before I had uh, more than an elementary understanding of how the game works, it was, uh, you know, I read contrarian investment strategies or some statistical books, and it's like, well, this should be the strategy that you always run, and mm -hmm. I don't believe that anymore. Yeah. I, I do fundamentally believe that you buy businesses at below what you think, uh, or, or at, at undemanding expectations. Uh, that, that, I believe, is an evergreen strategy. But within that, I do think that there are some tactical allocations that work in certain environments and don't in others. That said, I got caught offside last year, so what do I know? Look, it's, it's going to happen, right? I mean, it's, and everyone has their own process. And as an investor, just like as a, in life and investing, you, know, you kind of have to find your true north and find out what works for you and what you're comfortable with and stick with it. Right. I mean, I'm not sure if, if what you're doing is consistently wrong. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, then you, you got to change. You got to change. Right. There's no point. Like, then you're just like struggling with cognitive dissonance. Right. Like, you're just, you're just ignoring reality. And then that doesn't help anybody.
But I think there yeah. is value in kind of always asking yourself, like, what am I missing? Where could I be wrong? And then asking yourself, why is the stock doing what I'm doing? What do I think my own expectations are? I mean, the name of the game, as you said, is just buying fundamentally mispriced assets, right? I think that coming from like a classical training, looking at like Buffett, you know, trained up on all those concepts, right? The, the whole idea of like, you want to buy something low and sell it high is like, that's what investing is. I think being able to identify those periods and then inflection points within those periods are is much harder to do. And that's why for, for our process and Hedgeye's founded on this and I've adapted this, the fundamental view is like, you know, something can look cheap, but if growth is going to slow and they miss estimates, then if you think it's cheap, you're probably wrong, right? Because like estimates are going to get cut by 10%, right? The street's not baking that in. And so, you know, being very acute to like the modeling and where consensus is. And I know people like harp on the pod shops all the time, right? Because they're just like, they're just trying to figure out like, you know, a five cent EPS miss and try to arb that to some extent. You know, for me, it's more or less just being mindful of, you know, space, time, valuation, expectations, rate of change on the growth and how these businesses are, are ultimately doing and what's baked in. And, you know, I can go both ways in that scenario. And having a long, short framework allows you to do that, right? When you're along only, you know, your mentality is a little bit different, right? Because your threshold for what you think, like, I've had situations where, pe- where I'm short a name and people that are long, they like, I'm telling them this and I think it's a great short and they say, well, it's cheap. And yeah, I'm not really sure that's going to matter because I have a three to five year view. And I respect that. Oh, you sound like me on Altice right before I got <laughs> cut in half. Yeah. I How mean, was that? That was fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I don't <laughs> lose it. I've so let's not, let's not get diverted because no, I want I you mean, to look, finish I, your no, sentence, but say, that's like, exactly yeah. the conversation that we would have had yeah. had we had that conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, and then, you know, going into the year, I was like, well, you know, they're going to become a cash taxpayer. Free cash flow estimates are way too high. I, they've been underinvesting in the business for so long that, and then all the due diligence I was doing on the ground was like, look, this business is like, they're, it's, it's showing up in customer satisfaction and they're getting their lunch eaten by Verizon. And, you know, it took a while for that to actually, you know, to get the catalyst. Part of it was macro related. But the point is, is that that was a situation where I think that was a very rare opportunity on the short, right? Where you actually have a situation where a business is over earning, investors are valuing it based off of a, a number that's structurally too high because they need to invest more. And therefore, you know, my definition of risk, either long or short, is the permanent loss of capital. And I'm not saying you permanently lost 50%. If you're still invested, I really do hope you make it back. Because, I actually sold out. Okay. Well, because uh, I read yeah. Hempton and I think that. I'm going to learn from people smarter than me. And one of Hempton's like, one of, one of my favorite essays of his was watching people blow up buying levered entities that underperform and like buying more into it. And uh, yeah. I think the stock was at like 1950 or something when I sold. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to get out and I'm going to get rational and- Just move on. Not, I mean, sometimes it's just, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, just it's one of those situations where you just have to, you know, cut bait, move on, right? You know, and it is what it is. Or not. I know I had to. Yeah. That that I know for a fact. And mm-hmm. I and I have not regretted the sale. And, you know, obviously had the stock gone to 25, maybe we'd be having a different conversation. But I think it's allowed me to be more rational about what I saw that I dismissed. There was a lot of um 
I had a lot of cognitive bias in that. Mm-hmm. I think some of it was from past success. Yep. And I think some of it was just from like wanting to see what I wanted to see. And I, I like object. I mean, you know, you, you talk about the expert interviews and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really do legit like stream and they really are integral to my research process. That's not just bullshit that I read, but mm-hmm. I do think that when you read those transcripts, many of them appear to me to be people asking questions that they want to get the answers huh. for. Like it, you Le- can, leading, I, I read a lot of those with yeah. bias in them. Mm-hmm. And even despite the bias, the expert was like, I think they've cut to the bone. And I remember reading that interview and like dismissing it as priced in. And I should have been like, holy shit, here is an expert interview, which I believe skew bias heavily on the distribution mm-hmm. curve. And this guy will not confirm what this analyst is asking him. Why am I so like, why am I just dismissing this? Uh, and why, why is there not a better use of my capital somewhere else? Like that should have been when I look back at like things that I really overlooked. Mm-hmm. That was my version of, I think, what, what you saw, but well, you saw it. 10 different ways I mean, we were, and we, I only saw it one. Well, look, I mean, in all fairness, we shorted it in, I think, December of 2019. So it it was, it underperformed, but we went for, it was a wild ride, right? Yeah. Between then and now and then. And it is interesting how you can look back in retrospect and, you know, there's usually always one moment, right? And it's usually the key decision-making point where you're like, yeah, I knew that. I should have known better, but I didn't do anything, right? Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, in the case of Altice, you know, they're doing everything now. They're investing in fiber. I was just looking at some of the local town forums. I mean, they got eviscerated by every single local government that they were in, involved with coming out of the pandemic because of network quality issues and also how they handled all the hurricanes, right? And so from Mm. a perception issue, it was a big deal. And they were also getting overbilled by fiber. And it really just had to be a situation that they had to change something. And now they're rolling fiber out everywhere. You know, it's like, everyone's like, oh yeah, they're rolling out fiber, they're rolling out fiber in my town. I just saw it the other day. Now, here's the thing, like, is fiber more valuable than coax? Maybe, but is fiber more valuable than coax when you're just fiber going against fiber, right? And so that's the whole concept of like maintenance versus growth capex, where if you go back and look at what cable vision was investing, Suddenlink was investing in terms of their capitalization rates, um, or capital intensity, rather. Now, granted, the Dolans were probably spending too much, right? But the the point is still the same, that they really cut their CapEx and stopped investing in the business. And that, you know, led to comp- in, in highly competitive markets, and that led to, you know, market share losses. And so now they're playing catch up. And so it would have been great if they did the fiber push several years ago, and they were selling a fiber story. But the problem was that they were really, really slow in rolling out fiber. And you know, that's the only way that you can really generate the high ROI from fiber investments is if you move very quickly. Yeah. And then you get the scale advantage and then no one can come and overbuild you because it doesn't make sense. And then you're, yep. yeah, then, then you just, it's one of these positive flywheels, not to overuse the term, no, but you can start to get aggressive on pricing because you got capacity. That's yeah. But now, stuff. but now the issue is, well, okay. If they're, you know, frontiers rolling out fiber, um, they're already competing against Fios. So then what is their ability to raise price? They're making all these, accelerating all these capital investments, but are they going to realize the incremental return from those investments? And I think that's the big question, you know, to be had, right? Um, is this yeah, just, my understanding, yeah. uh, 
to plug stream again is that like they're currently running like two systems uh so maybe once the fiber is fully installed then they can kind of cut off the the legend yeah. the legacy oh, cable that, system how, and whatever yeah but, and you have to decommission the old network in order to realize yeah, what the a pain synergies. in the ass otherwise you have to basically support every single customer like and there's you know just like network effects work for you when you're scaling up they also you know work against you when they're declining so the more and more people that leave you know the coax network to go to fiber the less incentivized you are to maintain that and the worse the network becomes. And so then you kind of have. Yeah, but it's but people are still on it. Yeah, you got to support it. It's a pain in the ass. and it's. And but it, you don't want to. And then people are bitching because your service do, sucks. Do you, do you force conversion, right? Do you give them promotions yeah. to try to entice them to convert over? So it's a really it's a really tough transition to make when you're going from cable to fiber and competing in a market that's pretty dense. And also, well, in the case of cable vision, but also increasingly competitive. So, you know, it's again, like the question is, is this is just deferred CapEx that's catching up with them and we'll see if they'll be able to, you know, get back to growth, you know, in 23, it's possible they're doing all the right things by investing, but I'm just, you know, it's hard to get any type of conviction until you actually see the turn of the business come. Yeah, I agree with that. The other, the other, the one thing that I've always liked about the story they sold is through and through, they've always said that they are a fiber organization at their core. And like the belief internally is fiber is the end state. And I, I tend to agree with that, but uh, that is an insufficient insight to, uh, to drive an investment decision. I mean, on. if you look at like, I'm, so they say that, right. But I really think that if you go back and look at when the, when they tried to acquire cable vision and, and all the issues that were brought to light by regulators and policymakers because they saw how terrible of an operator Altice was in Europe and they were terrified that the same things were going to happen. But Altice, you know, sold a really great story and they promised to invest in fiber, right? They made all these promises. They promised to keep News 12 intact. They did all these things. And then what you slowly find out is that, and they did this in Europe too, is that they, they, they break their promises or they kind of, slow roll whatever they were doing yeah so they can say that yes fiber is the the future but if that's really the case then you know that you should have been more aggressive in rolling out fiber than you actually were instead just plowing back hundreds of millions of dollars a year to buy back your own stock that's undervalued so there's that great capital allocation opportunity like just misallocation of capital where you know that's altice is just not great operate operators for that reason so we'll we'll see we'll certainly see what happens with that one so uh, speaking of capital allocation decisions that I do not yet understand, I, was, I, I look at Roku and I ask myself, why is there no, or I shouldn't say no because that's hyperbolic, but why is the international piece of this puzzle so hard yep. and have they waited too long to get into the international scene? So it's a great question. I mean, part of the reason why the international puzzle is so hard is because there's just no precedent, right? So there's, it's really just all, you know, really purely speculation. Can't really say it's going to work or not with any high degree of confidence. You know, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Roku clearly had a very early lead in North America and the U.S., right? They did not have to spend a lick of advertising dollars, right, to grow their brand. Uh, and they only started... They did their first brand campaign 
last year, right? So mm. they've been able to, all their acquisition has been organic. Like Tesla. Yeah, it's been really, really good because they were early, right? And so they were the first streaming player in the market. So they have that, you know, position. And they were also able to, you know, Anthony Wood was really um, had a lot of foresight when he struck those agreements with TCL and Hisense uh, back, I think, in 2015, 2016, if I'm right. right. You know, right going into the really big smart TV upgrade cycle. So they rode that wave when, you know, smart TV shipments were still like 20% of total shipments. Now they're at 90%. And those uh, Chinese OEMs took a lot of market share. Um, so very, very smart, you know, decision making. When it comes to the U.S., uh, the international piece, there's a couple of things. One, from a streaming standpoint, right, the market is much further behind anywhere else, that, that behind North America. If you look at the number of streaming services per household, it's higher in the U.S. If historically, there hasn't really been a tremendous amount of demand for kind of these aggregation services. And now that's changing, right? Because Disney's launching internationally, HBO Max is launching internationally, Paramount Plus. So, so that so that there's going to be more, I think, more natural demand for these services. The other thing is that the pay TV ecosystem, XUS, is just you know we're we're earlier on there. You know, broadcast is still very sticky. People consume a lot more linear. Costs them a lot less down there. Yeah, yeah. So there's just a- oh well around around the rest of the world. Forget about down and out. All of it is just like a seems to be a better consumer structure in a bundled offering. Yes, yes. And you know what also makes it challenging for Roku is that the markets are more fragmented. You know, if you're going to tackle a market, right, like any market, especially in their space, like North America, the US is great, right? But then, you know, what do, you, what do all these internet companies tackle? Man? They go to the UK, they go to Germany, you know, they start with English speaking com- uh, countries first, and then they move on to non-English speaking, but still large markets like Germany. And then they typically go to like LATAM and then, you know, APAC is always last. You know, Netflix kind of set the course in that respect. And it's more fragmented, which means that they have to go out in each market and negotiate distribution deals with all the different content partners on a local basis, get all that local content on platform because if they don't have it, then it's not going to scale. It's not going to be attractive. They have to go and work with local retailers in each of these markets, right? To, to get shelf space, to help, you know, do promotion, uh, get promotional activity set up. And then from a, you know, supply chain standpoint, they have to work with all the OEMs and they have to configure their TVs for each individual market, which has different broadcast requirements, in some cases, different hardware specs. So it is just a much more difficult market to go after to try to scale. Hmm. And, you know, they were early in Mexico. They were actually, you know, fun fact, they were banned in Mexico for a little a bit of time because they thought that um, the Mexican government thought that they were, like, basically uh, ripping off, like, other streaming services. Like, it was a platform for copyright, and it was a threat to their local content publishers. They, they got that fixed, but I thought that was an interesting dynamic. But the point is, is that, you know, international is just a different animal. It's harder to target and scale. It's a whether the consumer use case is there is also a little bit different as well. And then, so that's that's from the consumer side. However, from a from a TV side, the question is not necessarily is somebody go out is somebody going to go out and buy like a Roku TV or Roku device. The question is is somebody go out going to go out and buy a TV? 
it's yeah. it's kind of similar to are you like you've done work on Sirius or like your liberty yeah. your liberty guy you know Sirius. yeah right so Sirius goes out and they pay it's like a cockroach I would have expected <laughs> Spotify to crush it a long time ago yeah. but at the end of the day the car distribution matters a lot exactly well that's the point right and so yeah. and and Roku's in a little bit of a different situation in that they're not paying for exclusivity right and there's not this upfront SAC component yet maybe there will be but they're getting sold into the channel. And then as long as these large TV OEMs continue to take market share, then Roku gets sold in along with that. And I know from our seat, you look at Roku and you say, well, what's really special about it? What's their competitive advantage? Like, is their operating system really that much better? And why is the consumer going to choose it? And I get that. But the, what really drives a TV purchase decision in most cases is really price. Like the lower price models drive the most amount of volume. And so you could sit there and look and say, like, yeah, I got my like $2,000 LG OLED or I have my $2,000 Samsung and I have my Apple TV, right? The reality is that like, you know, maybe that's like 10% of consumers less. You know, the vast yeah. majority of TVs sold are smaller TVs. They're the Roku TVs. And so as long as people are buying TVs and TCL can secure shelf space and be the lower cost kind of operator or provider in that space and provide a good value to consumers, then people will buy the TVs, maybe not knowing what Roku is, but they'll still be on the Roku platform. And so that's kind of the opportunity uh, because it's not necessarily like, okay, I'm going to subscribe to Netflix. I'm going to subscribe to HBO Max. I'm going to subscribe to Paramount, right? You could be a Roku user on the platform and monetize without having to have a really strong affinity to the Roku brand. That being said, like people still really do like Roku. Like there's they, they score well in terms of net promoter It works score. nicely. Yeah. I have a, a very nice OLED, uh, I think it's OLED, LG. I'm pretty sure it's an LG. I don't know. McMurtry. I recommended it to him and he likes it too, and he likes movies. So I have an, anyway. I have an, I have an LG OLED. I've I just got a C series. It's a good, it's good, good sale Black Friday. Dude, it's insane. And uh McMurtry's been trying he had been trying to get me to watch into the spidey verse mm -hmm. and i watched it on the tv and i was just like mind blown it was so, awesome it's so good it's so good yeah but that's web os right so like then it's like well i was just yeah. gonna tell you i actually run not on i don't run on their os i run roku on it because it's just kind of yeah. easier it is easier and that's kind of like i mean and, and that's like part of the, the case as well like so people think that devices and player sales are going to go to zero Right, that TVs are just gonna now that they're smart are just gonna completely cannibalize player sales, and that is true to some extent. But you know, a lot of people prefer kind of a Fire Stick or a Roku device. You know, a survey I ran in 2019, it was about 65 percent of all TV of smart TVs they were using either a Roku device or a Fire Stick instead of the native operating system that comes with the TV. Mm. And you know, look, I think. I've had Samsung Tizen. It was awful. It was an awful experience. The LG WebOS is okay, but it's still like kind of clunky, glitchy, apps crash. Yeah, it is a little clunky. Yeah, it's just there's something not right. And you no, know, that's kind of Roku's you know advantage in many ways. It's just like the brilliance and its simplicity, which a lot of people look at and say that they just don't innovate. But it's the channels, the way it's set up, the way the, ro the remote fits in your hand, like. Surveys upon surveys just show that the biggest advantage, like like the remote is so important to the ex huh. overall experience. It's nice ergonomic handle, like my Cutco knives. <laughs> exactly. 
So um, yeah, and then there's also like a network effect potentially, right? That's interesting. You have your, it is a nice yeah, handle. You have your Roku. I haven't like thought of it. <laughs> you have your Roku on all your TVs, right? Across all the house, your entire household. So it's everyone's dealing with the same type of experience. All your subscriptions are in one place. Your logins are there. You don't have to fiddle with like you know going from your Fire TV to your Roku TV. And there's still like ubiquity in both design functionality and also access to content. So as it stands today, there's no like, you know, the Roku, like the setting up of the Roku remote to your soundbar, your TV is very seamless. They have the Roku powered program that makes it so that they can integrate really well. It's kind of like the Spotify play, right? In terms of, in terms of like ubiquity being really important because it's a distribution platform like anything else. And then like the biggest question becomes like content and are they going to potentially lose any apps, right? And Yeah, or the ability to participate in the economics of the, the large ones. Yes, which they don't really anyway. Like, yeah, I know. They don't historically. It's part of what I get concerned about because if we're going to a world that's more and more consolidated on the content provider side, how long is the long tail of sort of niche content? Yeah, and it's very similar to like pay, like the rise of cable and pay TV, right? So I know you're a cable fan and a lot of people listening are like, it's not unlike what happened like then, like with all the different channels, the broadcasters rolling everything up, the balance of power between you know distribution and content providers. And I think that we're in an, been in an environment where the power has been with distrib- distributors uh, when it comes to CTV and streaming because all these media companies need scale and they need it fast. And Roku still has 40 to 40, 40 to 50% of all streaming hours happens on Roku devices. And they have, what, 55 million active accounts. Most of those are in the US and North America. So they're kind of unavoidable if you're a media company looking or an AVOD service looking to scale or, you know, you need access to it. The question becomes five years from now, 10 years from now, will they have the same type of leverage, right? I think what we've seen yeah. time and time again with these app store type models or any type of mature market, like, you know, return on capital naturally just declines, right? Like these streaming companies will look to get more profitable. It will probably come at the cost of economics of Roku to some extent at some point in the future. Um, I just don't think we're there yet. And the reality is that you know, by the time we get there, Roku's business could be three, four X what it is today. And so is that thesis going to really matter to you now? Or is that something that you have to worry about much further down the road? And I think that's more of the situation. But the content piece is definitely the most interesting part of the equation. Yeah, that makes sense. I had something that was moderately smart to say, and then I totally <laughs> blanked out when I tried to say it. But oh, well, I'm sure you think about it. I, you know, I think, oh, I, I think it's hard to argue that they haven't benefited from like the incentive of, uh, you know, Viacom to release Paramount Plus and like everybody's releasing their own app to prove to their investors that they can make it in a streaming world. Mm-hmm. And like that clearly benefits Roku in the short term. I'm I am super fascinated by like Viacom CBS and and the NBCU assets like like I. I had Xfinity. I actually like the cable box, and if they didn't charge me, I would be a cable box user, but I, I hate the rental fee. Yep. But even on Comcast Xfinity cable box, Peacock didn't work well. No, and I think there's a, there's a couple things there. 
I mean, well, remember Flex? You remember like Xfinity Flex yeah. and everyone thought that that was going to kill I have them? Xfinity Beta now, which is a dog shit product. I can't even, if I fast forward, I can't even see the commercials that I'm skipping. So I have to guess when to press play and I can't rewind live TV. It's as if I have gone back in time. Yeah. I mean, but I refuse to pay them any more money. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Because that's all high margin, you know, like all that all that equipment gets appreciated to zero and then it just becomes gravy and then that's ultimately probably going to go away. And Comcast well, is just get- an app. It, yeah. I guarantee you they don't invest a dollar in it. Yeah. Like it's all just pure margin. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, that, and that comes down to just pay TV, the future pay TV and people actually watching it or not. The beta app is like crap a lot, you know, but then again, like if for most people, like you're not, you don't care, right? You're, you're probably just, if you want pay TV, you're probably going to subscribe every six months so youtube tv or hulu with live tv if you really really want sports or you know you you care but um but yeah i think you know it's an interesting i mean and then comcast and i feel like i kind of missed the i'm I'm getting a little off track here but with comcast you know they're starting to get into smart tvs right they try to launch that which is i think a i get it but it's just i mean the play would have been to buy roku five years ago right but yeah imagine being a comcast investor and seeing them by Roku, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been, been an issue back then um, because it would have been small. But it's a uh, it's clearly a risk to them long term if they get disintermediated on the video side. I I mean, I think they already have. I think they've just been outflanked in a lot of different ways there, and now it's a matter of squeezing as much juice as you possibly can. Yep. Yeah. I mean, broadband. I mean, video. They made so many investments in X One on the video side. You know, and it's a pretty good product. I think it's a fantastic product. Yeah. But you know what I don't understand, man? The the thing that I've I've said, uh, and and I guess it's a function of business model, and maybe I'm an idiot, and I know that it's all the all like the truck rolls and the uh, and the free cash flow associated with the CPE is garbage in video. But like, if they had just given away Xfinity and like not been so tied to the rental box fee, could they have potentially built out? what Roku has. It's the innovator's dilemma, right? Like, yeah. you know, as your investor base, would you have been okay with them taking the EBITDA hit, right? Like, what do you optimize? But it's Brian's company. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, well, I think there's a level of arrogance probably there as well, right? You know, and like, is are they going to be willing to kind of invest in something early on that they think could be fundamentally like disrupt or just continue on just doing the same? I mean, it's, in the case of legacy media, maybe with the exception of Disney, um, who is who started to pivot a little bit earlier and getting things structured, but it's not like they've been bleeding edge when it comes to you know tech and getting ahead of where the consumer is. So yeah, I mean, look, they can still do the same thing. Like the future of pay TV, like let's say it just goes away, like there's still going to be value where they can do a similar type of model with Roku, where they sell streaming subscriptions, right? There's like distribution there, or they partner with a BMVPD. Right, because eventually, like they're not going to take a loss on pay TV, like like Charter Comcast. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you know them better than I do, but I don't think no, that, I, I don't they'll think never that. they'll never take negative margins on on video. So, I mean, uh, and, and video is becoming less and less part key to the bundle, right? As they come go more to like MBNOs and wireless. So as that scales, right, and they have this other part of the bundle to anchor on, then and the unit economics and theory of that business on the wireless side get better as it scales and video gets worse, then they're going to be less tight to video, less willing to pass through your higher programming expenses. 
And so, you know, I think that there'll be a day where they just exit. Like it'll just be like a wholesale exit. And maybe they just do a partnership with YouTube TV, Hulu with live TV for people that want it. You know, similar like what Frontier is doing or what Varaz and YouTube TV or whatever. What does Frontier do? Uh, Frontier, I'm not familiar. Yeah, so Frontier basically ex- exited the business, right? So they, they're on this whole like fiber campaign, like coming out that of That I knew. I just don't know their video. Yeah, because they don't really have any. Like they, they, huh. they basically said we're, we're, ba- we're deprioritizing video. We're basically exiting. They cut a lot of the fat, right? So it's really just more like a skinny plan. And then they said we're partnering with YouTube TV. And if you want, hmm. if you want it, and I'm sure within that agreement, you know, maybe Fiber gets or Frontier gets some type of finder's fee, right? Or some type of revenue share off that. And it kind of helps in that you have this great Fiber asset, symmetrical one to two uh, up and down. And then you can, you know, have this bandwidth heavy streaming service, you know, on top of it that scales. And so I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about the future. But it's, and, and then, you know, within Roku, you know, they still probably become like, you know, the platform within that. And do they get disintermediated somehow and become, te- get TiVo'd? I mean, you got to watch it, right? You always got to watch it. That's why I was so concerned about YouTube. Because if they lost YouTube, mm. then that could have been set precedent for losing other services. Because yeah. even though they don't directly monetize YouTube, it's still a large percentage of streaming hours. And they can't risk not having it on the platform. Yeah. So that's why I was very concerned because it would have threatened their entire competitive positioning or that part of the thesis. It would have invalidated it to some extent. But they figured it out. I'm not sure if it was a good deal or a bad deal. Probably not that. It probably was neutral or slightly negative, frankly, for Roku. But we'll never know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. It's funny to watch my kids interact with YouTube. It's like they don't even have a relationship with some of the, you know, like Nickelodeon, for instance. Mm-hmm. They don't have any relationship with that. Uh, they've got some relationship with some creators and whatnot. But it's bizarre, man. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, this is a boomer comment, but I'm kind of like, why don't you guys just put on some professional production? And they don't want to. They want to watch a bunch of like it's all short form, man. Kids it's, reality TV. I know makes no sense. I mean, it's YouTube's crack. It's uh, just the way it is. I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, and, and it, they're, they're just so dominant. I mean, for Roku, the question just becomes like, how well can they monetize the Roku channel from here? Right? Yeah. Because that's they have third party inventory, but the Roku channel is like their own and exclusive. And that's where they own the inventory. They get the highest margins on it. And can they push that? Can they scale that? And I think they've done a really good job at growing it. And there's a lot of investor skepticism out there, whether or not that can kind of be the next big thing. And I think the skepticism is, is you know, right. But the point kind of to our earlier conversation around process and valuation, like at some point, just like Roku is way too expensive at 500, it's going to be too cheap. And I, I would make the case that within that same valuation framework that I rolled out before, like around active accounts, ARPU, I, would, I could easily make the case that if Roku never grew again, like if, if they were to just, you know, maybe like grow ARPU, you know, by another 20%, maybe, you know, but just keep active accounts flat and just focus on that and driving a good experience and cash flow optimization, then I would say that the stock's probably worth what it is today. Like you probably don't make a lot of money from here, but you're not the present value of the future growth opportunity is like next to zero. So inter, we can debate international all we want, 
But if it's not priced into the stock, then who cares? It's all upside. And, it, you know, and maybe the Roku channel becomes like the next big thing. It's, it's quite possible. Like the yeah. management has a great track record of execution. They're going through a tough time now. Part of it's cyclical, part of it's a little bit secular. But I think, you know, the valuation down here is becoming really interesting. But again, I was, you know, to that extent, like the fundamentals of the business are not going to turn right until probably the second quarter of this year. And in that situation, you know, they could probably Q1 estimates are probably too high for accounts. Same thing with Q2. And so it can look cheap, but if they're going to miss, that's going to be a problem. So I'd rather wait for that clearing event. And look, it's possible that they miss and the stock goes up. And if they miss and the stock goes up, then that's probably a sign that yeah, you, know, that you should buy. Yeah, you should buy it because then you can, <laughs> yeah. then you can say that look, the back half is going to inflect positively. The supply chain issues resolve, and you have easier comp dynamics and the multiples coming into like a historic or not historic low, but like near an all time low. So there's a lot of interesting things to still like about Roku, even though it's kind of been part of this like COVID bubble basket that's burst. You know, it's an arc stock. You know, so I'm sure that there's a lot of people just hunting you know, or, you know, those as shorts, right? I think Roku is like the number one holding. But I'm not sure they're all, like their long-term bull case is necessarily totally debunked at this point. I have found the channel to be quite good. Uh, I do think they need to work on, uh, I'm going to use Spotify's term here. I don't know what Roku calls it, but their dynamic ad insertion. I've I have refound Arrested Development through watching, through my research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm a happy watcher. But then it'll like cut to an ad out of nowhere. And I'm like, come on, at least like cut where the show that it it seems like a natural show to be like, this is where a marker would be if this were on linear. Just throw a commercial in there. Yeah. But they don't do it that way. Like sometimes like mid-sentence, it'll just go to an ad. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, that's because it's digital, right? I mean, like YouTube yeah. YouTube's the same way. Like it's just the way digital ad insertion works. It's not very content focused. I mean, that's kind of like part of it too is like, you know, the TV buying experience is traditionally like very network based. It's very, um, you know, what content your ads are going to be placed against, you know, Roku's different in that respect because they're really trying to create it at scale. So, I mean, there's obviously, there's definitely opportunity for them to improve their ad tech. I mean, they, yeah, just riffing on that real quick. Like if you sign a deal with them, you don't know where it's going to get placed necessarily, do you? So it can get thrown on like the tennis channel for all you know. Yeah. And that's been a big criticism. They just promise you the demographic, right? Well, and genre. So you can do genre based targeting. You can know where your channel, what channel it's going to be on. You can know your kind of demo, but you don't know actually what type of content it's going to be placed on. And that's a big part of it. It's just the way that the, the agreements are structured with the, the content companies, right? Like, so Peacock TV or HBO Max or Paramount Plus, they reserve the right to be able to do that type of level of targeting. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult for TV buyers that are natural, that, that are used to that. At the same time, you know, Roku offers like incremental reach, right? Unduplicated audience. And they also have like really good targeting capabilities. So it's not just, you know, there's there's offsets there that make it you know, more attractive, potentially relative to linear. So no, that's one thing to consider. The other point I would make on like the data side is like they do have ACR tech, right? So auto content recognition, auto content recognition that's built into the TV sets. So they can see everything that you're doing on the TV. They can know that Bill Brewster is mm-hmm. watching, you know, Netflix and what they're watching on Netflix. Like they're he's watching Ozark. Right. And then based on that, they can infer kind of what your interests are and to help serve you ads or what type of consumer you are. Mm. And that's like, you know, valuable. Right. 
because that helps for so many reasons, but primarily targeting purposes. So that, that's kind of another advantage where like traditional network advertising, it's just more like brand focused. It's just, you know, birdshot and going after like a certain demo. And Roku also has the Nielsen integration, right? So they have all, they were first to strike a partnership with Nielsen that really helped that with measurement purposes and get a lot of TV buyers more comfortable. And there's a lot of other things that they did, but we don't have to get into all Didn't they that. buy that asset now? So um, they bought, I think they bought the ACR tech. I think they also bought the dynamic ad insertion tech. I thought they had bought they something did. from no, Nielsen. They did. No, they did a Nielsen deal. Yeah, I think they did a couple, one or two Nielsen deals. It was smaller. But, you know, wanting to have, I think they wanted to have ownership over their ACR tech was like first and foremost, because that was something that was like pretty critical to have. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that. Vizio has their own uh, proprietary like ACR tech too. So, so having that for Roku would be important. You know, an insight that I found super interesting when I was watching your stuff is that 45% of TV sold are through Walmart, 25 through Best Buy, and like five on Amazon. In terms of, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's- I'm uh, pretty sure that those numbers it? are right. Do your own due diligence, yeah. folks, but directionally, I'm right. Was that, yeah. And I, I thought your your comment to that person was was really interesting where you said, yeah, Walmart probably is more concerned with, uh, like probably doesn't care as much about whether or not your Roku- Android or I think maybe you were arguing that um, fire or maybe your first inclination was that fire was something that Walmart wanted to keep out. But then eventually you guys kind of settled on. It's probably more important to drive down costs and just like turn TV velocity for Walmart than anything. Right. Uh, which didn't Walmart end up partnering with fire? I don't think so. Or am I wrong? No, no, they, no, didn't, they didn't. Okay. I mean, right. I'm pretty Sorry. sure. No, I'm pretty sure there'll never be a situation where at Walmart you'll see Amazon devices. Or Amazon. So on, on is Walmart's TV, right? It's their house brand electronics. Is that still a uh, Roku yes. TV? Yes. Yeah. Was, last time I checked, I don't know if it yeah. changed in the last like three weeks. But yeah, at the time, I'm pretty sure. So they're powering that. Um, and so strategically, Roku is an important partner. Uh, they've also you know, been dabbling a little bit more with Android. They're also selling um, you know, the, the Comcast uh, branded TVs as well. A lot of the debate amongst the buy side has been, well, are you paying like Walmart a revenue share, right? Like, and is that going to destroy the business model? Like, are you paying for access? And, you know, my debate, my pushback has always been, you know, even if they are, we probably wouldn't know. I don't think it's going to destroy the business. But if they have to give up a revenue share in exchange for tons of additional scale or exclusivity, then I think it makes sense, right? Kind of going back to that whole Sirius XM equation, where if they, yeah. if they paid TCL a 5% take, in, like on every single TV sold, yes, it would hurt their gross margins. But if it means that they get, you know, access to a lot more market for them, like that's that, in my opinion, is, is probably like worth it. And that's kind of worked for, you know, Sirius, although Sirius is like a, a subscription based business, Roku is more of a platform. Yeah, but it rhymes, man. If I had, to, if the deal to me was you cut Walmart a little bit of a commission for a TV sold, build it into your hardware losses, and then you keep your platform economics, well, I would well, probably well, do that's, that deal all well, day. Well, that's, that, that's, why, that's why historically Roku's not really in Best Buy, right? Because that's like the Best Buy business model, right? Is that you pay for space. Yeah. 
And so Amazon has actually been really aggressive in terms of trying to find their share of the channel and paying for placement because like they've been boxed out historically because of Google, because Google makes mm. all their content partnership uh, content partners choose between Android. You can't use a forked version of Android, right? And so there's no large scale TV OEM that's ever going to say like, yeah, I'm going to adopt, you know, Fire TV if it means that I can't, you know, also use like traditional Android operating system. And if you're a Samsung or if you're like anyone, or if you're using, and that, and that goes across, well, Samsung is a bad example. But if you're any type of global like OEM that has any type of relationship with Android, right? It's a corporate deal. It's not just like one one side of the house. So that applies to the entire organization and ma- basically makes Amazon like you can't partner with them, right? So it's, hmm. so then that helps Roku indirectly, but also helps Google with Android. And then again, Walmart with their on-branded device, you know, wanting to compete effectively against Amazon makes Roku interesting. And then people still like to buy their TVs and see their TVs and go to the store and buy it, right? It's a big traffic driver for these guys too, right? So that's another, you know, part of it as well. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I don't know. It's uh, it, 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 it remains in my too hard pile. I obviously have more questions uh, to, to answer, but um. I do I do fundamentally like the product and I do think I understand how the Roku channel can um can continue to grow. I like how you can search for anything and then it's a pretty seamless subscription. Like if you search for Dexter, it's a pretty seamless click on Dexter's new season. Yeah, Discovery. I haven't done that cuz I didn't like how that kind of yeah. pivoted, but whatever. Yeah, no, I mean Discovery is key, right? I mean it's very similar to Spotify in that respect. It's a yeah. it's a platform, it's distribution. The economics look pretty good now. I think they'll continue to be the case. But, you know, there's a very strong, you know, strong group of bears and a strong group of bulls on the name. And, and both, if you've timed it right, you both have made a lot of money. You know, and I think yeah. that's going to continue to be the case, like we see with any type of growth stock or company that's kind of early on in its adoption. Nice. Well, I appreciate you dropping some of your knowledge here. I hope that uh, people appreciate it as well. How's fatherhood been? It's been good, man. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely kind of thrown me for a little loop. Like I'm, I'm trying to like figure it out. I kind of had my everything with work and life pretty, you know, well balanced, and I still haven't quite figured out, you know, my my morning routine and when I can get stuff done. I, I think the reality is that I just have to brace the chaos and the uncertainty and just realize that it's never, I'm never going to get any type of certainty. Things are always going to just be all over the place and, and try to figure out how to wing it. So I'm, that's kind of where I'm at, but you know, uh, Cole's healthy. My wife's healthy. Um, we're very fortunate and, uh, I'm looking forward to kind of the next, uh, the next phase here as we go forward. So, and everyone, that's everyone's up, been man. super nice and supportive and reaching out on Twitter and giving their advice. And, you know, Elliot Turner, he sent me a book which was really, I really appreciate it. And it was really helpful. So thank you, Elliot. Elliot's the yeah, man. He's, he's great. So um, yeah, and, and Bill, thank you so much for having me on. I, it's been really awesome to see kind of everything that you're doing and the investments that you've made in, in the podcast and just growing your reach. It's been, it's been really awesome to see. So I'm glad that you're finding success. Thanks, man. I, uh, I don't know. I, I obviously enjoy doing it. Uh, I don't know that I love the responsibility that I'm willingly taking, but I think it's made me a lot better. Like there's, uh, 
there's some stuff that's come up and I've just been like, that can't happen. You know, like for instance, um, like yesterday on value after hours, we were talking to name and like, I didn't have my numbers in front of me. And I was like, that can't happen again. Like I gotta, you know, if people are listening to me, I'm asking for people's ear. I need to, to be a little bit better, but tighter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause it, it's kind of like no longer just something that's fun. It's actually, people actually like care about it and come to it, which is fun to build. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, man. No, it's been good. I appreciate you being a guest and I hope you will be one again. And in the meantime, I hope somebody subs to your stuff, man. I like you. I like that you're an entrepreneur and uh, I like what you're offering. And thank you for giving me a peek behind the curtain so I could have a uh, informed conversation with you about it. Yeah, Bill. Thanks. I really do appreciate that. Thanks.